0: This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEM.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sporting Max, brought to you by Bastion GRP. For all your special needs in recruiting, engineering, and defense, go to bastiongrp.com. Today on the show, we have tennis broadcasting, an absolute superstar, Brett Phillips. Brett, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you?
0: Max, uh, a pleasure to be on your podcast. I've heard it's been going gangbusters, so absolutely privileged to be a guest today. Going well.
1: Thanks, Brett. Now, obviously, Aussies are all over the world, like we spoke um, at the moment. Can you tell me a bit about what's going on um, with our Aussies?
0: Yeah, there's a lot happens, uh, Max. I mean, when you think about it, the the little component of the tennis season that we see in January is just such a small part of the whole calendar because the players obviously disperse here, there and everywhere. And, yep. you know, Feb- February is a really interesting month because there's a lot of the top-line players who have a little bit of a spell after the Australian Open, and they're gearing up for Indian Wells and Miami, which are the two uh, big flagship events in March, which are really considered to be the fifth and the sixth major, if you like, behind the four Grand Slams. But the Aussies, they're going to roll the sleeves up here, and they get that home crowd behind them in January, which... You know, they don't have that many privileges to play at home. It's such Ooh, a short yeah. season at home. So now they've got to go away, you know, whether it's the ITF Tour, the Challenger Tour, uh, the ATP, the WTA Tour, and just simply keep building that ranking. I think, you know, we've got a lot of Aussies at the moment who are on the cusp, you know, a lot between that 100 and 200 bracket who are trying to crack uh, the top 100. As I speak to you today, I've just been watching uh, Kim Beryl, uh, the Gold Coaster, who we had on the first serve our show last uh, Monday night. And, you know, she's about 120 at the moment, but she's going and playing some big events on the ITF tour against international fields. So this is where you test yourself. And if you can win these sort of matches, the ranking uh, takes off. So you've got, we've got Aussies everywhere, mate, amongst all the, the superstars of the game who are you know playing some big ATP and WTA events.
1: What about someone like Sanasi Kokanakis, obviously, when he's, he goes all right in doubles, then he gets to singles, he gets to, I guess, that third or fourth round of the Oz Open and just falls out. How do you, as a tennis player, not only for Thanasi, obviously he's in that top 100, how do you try and break that top 100 or top 200 um, bracket?
0: Yeah, look, this is a tough sport. It really is. And the margins are so minimal. I mean, if we think back to, look, the good part for Thanasi the last two years, because of all the injuries that he had, at least he's had two years of continuous tennis. So he's had to go and grind, play a lot of matches, get that conditioning back. It seems like physically now he's as good as he ever has been. So I don't think the body's a worry. It's now trying to develop his game. And, you know, Thanasi's a big, powerful ball striker, big serve. But in professional tennis right now, you've got to keep adding dimensions. You know, can you play the drop shot effectively? Can you slice a little bit? Uh, We miss Ash Barty every day of the year, let me tell you, Max, uh, with her game (laughs) style. So you've got to have some tricks and look the Nasi certainly if everything goes right this year should get himself somewhere back between 50 and a 100. I think that's that's certainly the starting point is he capable of being a top 50 player absolutely but as we saw that match against Andy Murray at the Australian Open we he, he had Murray in the cusp of his hand two sets to love. Looking to close it out, he left the door open. A guy like Andy Murray just pounces on that. He's just one of the great warriors of the sport who still thinks he can win from any position. Two sets to love down. So, Thanasy got all the potential in the world, like a lot of our Aussies, but you've got to roll your sleeves up and you've got to go a little bit harder. And that's what our Aussies need to do this year. Jason Kubler, uh, Thanasy Kokanakis, Alexi Popperin, who we saw some good signs at the Australian Open. They've got to grit their teeth and get past these tough competitors around the world and try and keep their ranking and establish it inside that top 100 and stay there for a period of time.
1: Well, there's also a couple of you know good youth tennis players coming through the ranks uh, at the moment. For example, Steph Webb, who was exceptional in the Australian Ooh. Open um, in the junior women's singles. Um, she's playing some great shots. I mean, her game was really... Um, Almost hut perfectly there. Um, I want to get into a bit of your career, Brett. Was it always tennis for you or were there other sports as a kid that were, you know, in the mix around there?
0: Well, I think anyone, Max, that's grown up in Melbourne, you know, it was footy for me, a diehard uh, Fitzroy supporter. God love them. Not here anymore. Um, passed away in my eyes back in 1996. So yeah. I haven't become, Are you Brisbane I haven't, now? No, I haven't become a Brisbane Lions fan. So I've been without a club. Now for what nearly thirty years, wow. uh, which is quite remarkable, and I was there every game uh, in the in the outer interstate, doing stats as a, a young man. Lived from Saturday to Saturday, loved it. Fitzroy always the underdog, so you loved when they just recorded a win. And so footy for me, and you know, I'd coached junior football, so heavily involved in junior footy, and then it was cricket and the summer. Kind of, I loved my cricket. Tennis was always uh, certainly a passion. But not at the level, and probably tennis has replaced cricket for me. I mean, I still love the cricket, but tennis has probably overtaken uh, the cricket. And I, you know, I'm lucky to call the footy, obviously, for uh, SEN and AFL Nation these days. So it's sort of the, the perfect combination for me doing footy and tennis. But the tennis work component has come, yeah, later in my career.
1: So why do you think that is that obviously the tennis overtook the cricket as a passion of yours?
0: Do you know what? I think back in, I, th- I think for me, and I've said this on SCM many times, you know, over the years hosting shows, I think the demise of the West Indies has just taken away something of cricket for me. When I started following cricket in the early 80s, I mean, the Windies were the best team going right, around. Brian Lara, went, hold oh, up. But yeah, go go back, uh, you know, Viv Richards, Richie Richardson, Gordon Greenwich, Desmond Haynes, Clive Lloyd, mm. all the big fast bowlers, mm. they were just crushing teams. I mean, the Australian fast boulders have been going out there with chest pads and arm pads and you know, <laughs> a bit of extra, extra protection around the helmet just to try and evade uh, the windies. And then they've gone from being just unbelievable to totally inept in a lot of ways. I mean, this decline has been going on for 20 years. So I don't know, it sort of took away a bit of my passion. And that's when Australia started to dominate for about 10 to 15 years and I think there's a real gulf and I think international cricket, I don't know, I just feel like it's not as competitive as it could be and and that's where yeah, tennis uh, through work opportunities became uh, sort of a business down the track yeah, for me.
1: Do you think the demise of the West Indian cricket team keeps soaring and suffering below the surface over the next five to ten years?
0: I don't know how it's going to rectify itself really. I mean... You know, they're in a, a part of the world where they just, for a period of time, had a freakish bunch of cricketers. And we're going to remember, I mean, these are all mm-hmm. separate nations, all these islands in the Caribbean, separate nations. They're only called the West Indies in cricket terms uh, yep. when it come, comes to an international competition, Olympic Games, yep. Com Games, are obviously separate countries. So, yeah, I'm not sure if they can get that level of cricketer. Back together as a as a group. They just were lucky to have just a, an unbelievable bunch of cricketers who were dominant there for, what, about 20 years from the mid-70s to the uh, early 90s. So, yeah, I'm not sure it's going to probably rectify itself.
1: What was it about tennis that encapsulated and caught your eyes at, it at an early age?
0: Yeah, if I think uh, back to a family holiday on the Gold Coast in 1987 and that was the year Pat Cash uh, won Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And you know, I went on. I've gone on later to meet his coach, Ian Barclay, and interviewed him. And what a what a terrific guy! You know, all these years on to reflect on that triumph and, and Wimbledon, as we know, that's that's the biggest one in tennis. You win Wimbledon; it's on your CV forever. It's the Mecca of tennis, the Holy Grail, so to speak. And the Aussies have not always found it easy to win uh, Wimbledon. Mm. Certainly, back back in another generation, yes. Uh, But today's tennis, it's just so hot, the competition from all around the world. But I remember Pat climbing into the stands, hugging Ian Barclay. He's probably the first to, I think, do that. So that always um, sort of grabbed me, uh, that moment. And then, you know, you'd be up late watching Wimbledon as a kid, uh, you know, through the sort of June, July school holidays. And it was the one you stayed up for and... You know, just so many great champions of uh, that era. Great characters. I think of Connors and McEnroe, and then along came you know Agassi and Sampras, and I mean, there are just so many names I could mention. And Then you know, Leighton Hewitt popped up for a little period there. Uh, grabbed his opportunity in between sort of Sampras retiring and the emergence of uh, Roger Federer. So uh, he, he timed his run beautifully, uh, Leighton Hewitt.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, can you take me through your first opportunity um, at Magic? Um, as a footy broadcast producer and assistant.
0: Yes, well, look, the uh, obviously the ambition was to try and get into the sports media industry, and it probably started, you know, back end of high school. I've probably got to thank Eddie McGuire uh, for that because Eddie, at the time, was reading the Channel Ten sports news. This is before he went on to become uh, the identity that he has through Channel Nine. He was doing the sports updates. I thought, chief, he can't play sport at the highest level. Uh, the next best thing would be to be a commentator or a host or just involved in some capacity. And,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, back end of uh, high school, going into uh, university, studying radio, media. uh, Radio became sort of the passion. And then an opportunity came up at Magic 693. I used to catch the train down to Frankston. Uh, I wasn't driving uh, back then. And every Saturday I'd be in the studio. I'd take the talkback calls. I'd help the producer just put together the whole coverage and from – Memory, I think it was Kevin Bartlett. It was uh, Ian Major, one of the great callers um, back in the day. I think Sam might have been involved, a uh, Big Kekka, and many others. So that was a bit of an introduction, really, just to live radio. And that's the part, well, I think, Max, all these years on, that's the part that I still love about being involved in radio, is that it's live, it's raw, anything can happen. You don't know who's going to call up. You don't know what's going to be said on air. It's it's not scripted. Uh, you, can't, you can't sort of cut it. <laughs> it's there. And, yeah, that was my first taste at magic, which I don't think lasted too long after as a football station from memory, but that's where I started.
1: What about as a host? Because you never know when, you know, a name pops up on your screen in the SEN studios. You never know what that voice is going to be on the other end and the producer also <laughs> At the other end, I've had it happened a couple of times, um, where the producer, who's someone's put on a voice to the producer, and isn't who they are when they when they get on get on air. So, what's it like to when you put in difficult situations? Um, obviously, as a broadcaster, being able to navigate your way around that.
0: Well, I'll share a little story with you, and it did make uh, the public many, many years ago when I was hosting overnights at uh, SCN, and people still laugh about it now with me. I was hosting Midnight Till Six.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had a producer who had taken a call uh, from someone alleging to be the brother of the Fitzroy legend Kevin Murray, the uh, the Brandlow medalist, the man who wears the Branlow still around his neck, and the man claiming to be his brother said, look, uh, Kevin's passed away. And when you're working, let me tell you, Max, when you're working at 3 a.m., I wouldn't say you, you're absolute sharpest, and mm-hmm. we uh, we went with it. We went with the news. I trusted my producer at the time, and we went to air. We were taking obituaries for about an hour and a half, uh, tributes to Kevin Murray, and then uh, word filtered up to Shepherd and Marutna, where Kevin lives. That uh, someone said he's passed away. His wife rang into the radio station. And let me tell you, I just wanted to crawl under the chair and never come out because she said, no, Kevin's right here. You can talk to him. He's his heart's beating. He's still got his brain low around his neck. And when I finished on air that day, I turned my phone off. And uh, when I turned it back on about 2 o'clock that afternoon, there were calls from everywhere, quotes. Herald's done the age. They wanted something. So the biggest lesson I learned, Max, is to make sure you verify and triple-check everything. And Kevin Murray, God bless him, is still with us.
1: Absolutely. Now, 1994, late December or early December, I think it was, began as a sport reporter on legendary sports radio station, RSN. Can you tell me about how you got your breakthrough, got that opportunity to get on air?
0: Well, back then, well before SCN started, uh, and it was known then as 3 UZ, which became uh, Sport 927, which became Radio Sport National. So it's had a few... Name changes, but three years was the sports station in Melbourne. And mm-hmm. predominantly like it is now, it predominantly is horse racing, but with a breakfast show and some other sports shows.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's where, that's where I wanted to work. I'd done work experience there that particular year in 1994 when I was studying uh, radio at Swinburne. And I just pleaded with the bosses to give me a job. Um, so the job actually started in production making the commercials, recording the voiceover guys. And then it led into a sports role. I was producing the overnight show. But what a great station. I have such fond memories of 3UZ and being the racing station. uh, There was tickets to the Spring Carnival. uh, Mooney Valley crops on a Friday night up there in the committee room. It was absolutely brilliant. And some of the best people in radio I met uh, at uh, 3UZ because the the station is still going, obviously, uh, today. And... And they've still got a, a great presence, not only in Melbourne, but also, you know, country Victoria. And, yeah, I really got I got the um, the hands dirty there, learnt so much. And those production skills that I learned, gee, they've come in very handy these days when you've got to, you know, do it all yourself.
1: Mm, absolutely. Now, can you tell me about being a newsreader? Obviously, with radio, you can't make too many mistakes because obviously the audience picks up um, on that kind of thing and you can't get away with it as much as, um, yeah. TV and, and visual communication. So can you take me through how, as a news reader, how planned that news segment has to be?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest lessons I learned when I went to Triple M and Fox there for a period, I was, yeah, reading news quite heavily. And uh, being an FM network, everything was timed. So you had, for example, you had a 2 minutes 30 window to read that bulletin because it was being networked all over Australia. So there was a computer system called News Boss, and when you typed, so I wrote all my own scripts, mm-hmm. and basically it, it times it to uh, the, your pace or your style of writing. But one particular day, uh, it came a little unstuck because the clock was counting back to zero in the studio, and normally on FM radio the weather is a pretty brief thing. It's yeah, it's fifteen degrees uh, tomorrow. Right now it's twelve degrees. I had forty seconds left to read the weather. Oh, so dear. I think it's I think it's for the first time in history, Max, that uh, we had the seven-day forecast on FM radio because I had to pad out to zero. I couldn't finish beforehand. So I always remember that uh, fondly. But, yeah, obviously the biggest thing I learned was word economy and particularly on FM radio how five or six words you could condense down to one or two words and just mm. putting your scripts together. and that, But that took just... Years of experience, really, to, to nail that. Uh, but certainly news reading, yeah, very different. Um, you, you had to obviously be clean. Uh, it's not ad living. You have a set script. You've got to include all the key facts, and it's got to be polished. And But sometimes, uh, being live, you don't know what's going to happen. And we see news readers, whether it be radio or TV these days, have their stumbles, and that's okay. I think the viewer accepts that. Um, but, yeah, obviously your aim is to really, really nail, um, you know, reading the news.
1: How, does that, how did that help you in terms of then going into lengthy radio broadcasting?
0: You know, it's funny because I didn't have an ambition to be a talkback radio host. I, had, yeah. I didn't, did not even think about that.
1: What, what was your ambition? Well,
0: the ambition was simply to get into the sports media industry. I I wouldn't even say when when I was 17 or 18, I didn't say that I want to be an AFL commentator. I just wanted to cover sport.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so I thought, let's just see where it all goes. And then obviously you develop some ambitions as you go along. But to become a talkback radio host, I used to to listen to talkback radio and think this is quite daunting. I mean, you have to be knowledgeable about everything. I mean, Mm -hmm. just dealing with the, the punters out there. And my opportunity came through Anthony Hudson, who was the temporary program director at uh, SCN at the time. I was working at Triple M. I was a freelancer. I was actually a referee for a young guy going for a job at SCN. And I said, by the way, we're looking for an overnight host. Would you like to do it? I had two days' notice, and I just threw myself in. Wow. And... One thing I learned, and I think overnights is the best grounding for anyone that wants to get into radio, because if you can survive six hours talking to yourself overnight, you can do anything. And I think it's the best grounding still for anyone that wants to get into the industry. Um, and I actually enjoyed the shift, because you could talk to America, you could talk to Europe, we have guests from all over the world, talkback callers uh, sprinkled in, and you and I think over time you realise that you didn't need to be necessarily an expert. You can't be an expert on everything because I'm an extension of the sports fan. Really, I mean, my job is to obviously be well prepared and know my stuff, but I'm also I'm also learning and I'm curious. So I don't know I don't know the A to Z, the finite details of every single sport. So you develop a rapport with the audience. You develop a style and. You just be who you are and you be really authentic. And I think that develops a great relationship with the listeners. But that that's taken some time to, you know, try and sort of hone that craft.
1: What you mentioned that honing that craft. How do you hone the craft between the difference um of TV broadcasting and radio?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean that's it's funny because the TV has come well down the track. I mean, there was no ambition. It was it was radio it was my love and my passion. And as a result of you know, getting in, involved in tennis as a broadcaster, an opportunity came up to expand outside of radio uh, through Channel 9. And the, the Channel 9 mantra, Max, was they wanted someone who could come in, mm-hmm. who really knows their tennis, and who can ad-lib, who knows, just knows things, has just really that Off intimate top. knowledge. Absolutely. So the opportunity to come to work at Channel 9, and it, it is such a different beast, uh, staring into a camera, uh, being conscious of presentation, just been able to hold focus, have people actually talking in your ear, uh, a little bit of that left brain, right brain, be able to stay composed. But I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the challenge of it. And I've got to say um, the people who have worked with me have been extremely uh, patient. And I think the difference, the difference is you have less time to do everything. So there's always a clock on you, I find, with TV, in that, okay, we're coming to you, but you've got 40 seconds to say this before we need to go to a break that has to be exactly at this time. Whereas radio has more uh, inflexibility, uh, if you like, where, you know, you don't strictly have to be there. You can go 30 seconds longer. You can go a minute longer, two minutes longer. So TV sharpens you up, no doubt, I think, in your presentation and 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 condensing down what you've got to say otherwise you know you'd be waffling on probably like i am now for a a long long time
1: is tv more so learning on the job and sort of off the cuff more than um i guess how you can prepare for those kinds of situations um obviously it's completely different to radio in terms of timing and things like that like i've spoken to mitch cleary at channel seven you know he's got 30 seconds to read this news report he goes and after you have got to be so spot on with mm. how you time that to the exact second.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And you're also uh one thing you, you have to learn is you, you're talking to the screen. Mm. Um, so often there are pictures, obviously, that accompany your voice, and you need to at best, you know, marry all that up together. So that that's taken for someone that hasn't done a lot of television in their life until the last two years, that's taken me just a a little bit of time to totally get right. But the great part of the people behind the scenes is that they can sort of work to you as well. So it's incredible. I mean, anyone, I'd, I'd advise anyone who has an interest in the media to go and sit in a TV control room who are putting together a broadcast. For example, when I do the Wimbledon coverage on Channel 9, I always go up and and thank the people behind the scenes who are either putting graphics to wear, they're rolling in uh, vision, they're just um, coordinating cameras. It's 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 phenomenal to watch it uh, behind the scenes, and they they can they can fit to you because sometimes you don't get it totally right, but they can marry it together that the the viewer out there, you know, probably wouldn't even notice.
1: And it looks seamless, doesn't it? it Absolutely. Can. So, how yeah. did you get your opportunity to, you know, anchor at these events like the French Open you mentioned, Wimbledon, US Open, Australian Open, and on court interviewing in Channel
0: Nine? Yeah, I think uh, it certainly is. I got more involved in tennis, and the benefit I've had is that I've had a radio show now for fifteen years called The First Serve, and that I suppose is um, yeah given me a platform in tennis. You know, we're I'm the only one. Uh, running a radio show in Australia, uh, covering the world of tennis. So it, things sort of stem from that, really. Well, you're doing this. You know your tennis really well. Would you like to come and do this role, whether it be Tennis Australia, uh, someone that can actually you know, go on court, who mm-hmm. know, knows how to interview the players in terms of tennis content and th- follows the sport, basically, is what I'm trying to say, follows the sport 12 months of the year, which I do, um, they, 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 I don't always maybe make the best interview. It depends. I mean, TV networks are looking for uh, different things, so I'm probably more uh, line and length when it comes to, uh, you know, talking tennis with the players. Obviously, there are yep. other interviewers who love to ask them about what restaurants yep. they're going to or what uh, <laughs> what jewellery they're wearing or whatever. It's probably not my go. I like to try and get the tennis uh, content out of them. But I'll tell you, the best one was Serena Williams two years ago because she walked up. At the Oz Open? Absolutely. On court and you're thinking, my goodness me, what am I going to ask Serena? She has done so many interviews, right? I've got to, I've got to ask her something to capture her attention.
1: I'll yeah.
0: just ask her about her forehand and her backhand and everything else. And Tom Brady had just won the Super Bowl at Tampa Bay when he moved over to Tampa. And she'd referenced him a couple of days before in the press conference. And he's early 40s. I'd love to go to my early 40s. He's inspiring me. As I mentioned the word Tom Brady to her and the Super Bowl result at the time, because I think that that was the Australian Open started just a fraction later in February a couple of years ago, her eyes just lit up and she thought, well, here we go. I'm going to engage with you in this interview and it just makes your job so much easier. So players are tricky. Tennis players are tricky to interview, particularly when they've just played a match and they might have been on court for two or three hours in the heat of the Australian Open, and they're in, they're in no mood, let me tell you, to be answering your questions. So you've got to try and find something that can just get them excited enough to want to talk to.
1: Now, obviously, two completely different sports in AFL and tennis, two completely different ways to obviously call the game. In terms of the broadcast and commentary styles, um, what links the two together?
0: Well, I think, you know the essence of sport particularly on a radio medium is that you have to paint a picture if someone's driving around right in their car they're walking their dog they've got their headphones in you need to paint the picture of exactly what's going on mm. it's such a it's such a different medium and i did tv footy tv commentary for a little period with fox footy and i had to change my whole language because i was so radio trained you know, yeah. Say the the ball's on the southern stand side, yep. hunt road right into the ground, fifty out. TV, you don't need to say any of that because everyone can see where the ball is and what end of the ground it's at. But the essence is to bring that excitement, whether it be tennis, footy, whatever other sport. So you've got to get yourself up. And there are days you can walk into the commentary box feeling just a little bit flat. You mightn't have had a great day, but as soon as that green light's on, the red light, whatever it is, you you go and you're in work mode, you're there to deliver a product for the footy fan who's hanging by the radio, wants to know the result, wants to know the course of the game, everything else that's going on. I think the thing with tennis, and every year I have to sort of retrain myself because I only do tennis ball-by-ball radio for two weeks of the year. Footy, you get into Mm. a nice groove. You do six Mm. months every year, so you get into a good pattern. And the one thing I realised with SCN and tennis is that not everyone likes tennis, and tennis on the radio can be a tricky sport to follow. So I think I've probably mixed it up across the journey. It's sort of you're calling. But it's not just forehand, backhand, forehand, backhand. That's pretty monotonous uh, for the viewer who's driving around their car. You know, it's trying to build a bit of a crescendo. Where's the ball going? Who's going to pull the trigger? Uh, you Because know, <laughs> otherwise you're describing the same thing. Mm, over and over. Over and over. And for me, it's monotonous to be able to do that. So, yeah, I think it's finding different ways to describe the same thing, uh, but also tell a bit of a story at the same time when it comes to the tennis, because there are a lot of people who are occasionally tuning in at that time of year who don't know the backstories of a lot of these tennis players from around the world. So you're mixing that in with the commentary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What about in the bunker? Is there, I guess, a sense of is it quiet, in the bunker or can you hear what's happening on court, the conversations between players and refs mm-hmm. and things like that?
0: Yeah, no, we've got full effects in areas. So we can hear uh, all the court effects. So uh, We can hear conversations with the chair umpire. Um So that's all stuff that we can put to air, which is great. Um, we're applicable if there's a, a robust discussion going on and it's the, the audio quality is uh, good enough. So, look, we feel like we're very much there. He's probably the best broadcast position I can think of you know we're at that sort of ankle level yes we still have, we are still aided by a monitor that we have to sort of call off but we get to see everything up close um you know players walking up to the window meters away from you you get to see all their reactions that the rawness of their reactions during Is that, that
1: the best position you've been in in your career mm. from a bunker yeah I think so yeah I'm trying to think
0: uh around the world I mean from a footy Putting perspective, I think to me, Marvel Stadium's the best broadcast spot to call uh, football. You know, you're almost what just above level two there, you can almost reach out and touch the players. But yeah, tennis-wise, yeah, I love being down at that level just to see how how hard, how physical it is, particularly on yeah. the men's side of the game when you're watching these brutal rallies, Djokovic and Nadal, and how they're sliding on a hard court just in front of you and Uh, The ground they cover, their lateral movement, it's it's quite phenomenal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, can you tell me about your first time court announcing or in a bunker? What's that first time like?
0: Mm. Well, court announcing was interesting because I took over from the legendary Craig Willis, and Craig did that role for 20 years with Tennis Australia, and he was the Mm -hmm. AFL's MC, obviously. And then Craig retired. And I got thrown into the tennis role. And whilst it's it's not difficult, I mean, you've got to know the, how to pronounce the players' names, but, you know, that, that's, the, that's the benefit I had is I had the knowledge of the players to write bios, to be able to interview them. But still, you've got 15,000 people at Rod Laver Arena and you've got to nail it. And I used to watch Craig uh, quite a bit, having known him over the years, and he had this incredible ability to be able to nail a script. Uh, whether it was a script that was given to him, which is sometimes the case, or whether you're ad-libbing uh, on the run, and yeah, I think you know you, you're just excited to be there. You you tend to get into a bit of a zone mm-hmm. of just doing what you do, and you're just trying not to make a mistake. But you know things things can happen. But I I, I have to say, hand on heart, I can't think of anything drastic that's uh, happened. Uh, actually, there's one well, one moment that wasn't totally my fault, which was at the Fed Cup mm-hmm. up in Wollongong between Australia and Ukraine, and Ukraine have twin sisters, uh, Ludmilla and Nadia Kitchenok. and they actually made a change uh, for the doubles and brought the other sister in. But when the sisters were, when the doubles were walking towards the court, I just announced the sister who had been named and, of course, Kenneth Australia came running around about two minutes later to say, no, it's actually Nadia Kitchenock. And I had no bio written for Nadia Kitchenock, whose singles ranking was about 900 in the world. So I was scrambling for about three minutes to try and actually make her sound like she was the world number one. But somehow we we pumped her up and I pulled out a few junior results and, you know, she came across uh, okay. But, yeah, there are moments where you've just got to ad lib and, and get it done.
1: What's been the last 15 years with the first serve been like?
0: Really rewarding, to be honest, uh, Maxim. And if it wasn't for SEN, having a 24-hour sports station in Melbourne, probably the first serve doesn't exist. And SEN had a golf show from day one, 2004, called Chasing Birdies back mm-hmm. in the day, Mark Allen and Craig Spence. And I went to management about three or four years later as I established myself at SEN, I said, hey, I reckon if we've got a golf show, we should have a tennis show. Mm. Very similar. Mm. You know, obviously all around the world, pocket of tournaments here. The difference is tennis has a major here. Golf doesn't have a major in Australia. And, yeah, the first serve, it's gone through a lot of different time slots. It's um, it's become more uh, national now. It used to be very Melbourne-centric, and that's with the expansion of SEN. And we're now into New Zealand which is great. And on the back of a radio show, we've developed a website, social media channels. You know, I've got a great team now who are producing so much tennis content. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a tennis community here who are very passionate about the sport. No different to the local football community. If you follow your local footy club, the most important thing for people is their local tennis club. And that's what they're passionate about. So it's great to have that balance between covering the pro game, covering the game domestically, and it's such a huge sport, 12 months of the year. There are matches every day. So it's, you know, once you commit to doing something like this, you do it You do it properly. And, you know, we follow our, our Aussies religiously. Uh, we want them to grow. We, you know, what's the pass mark for tennis? I mean, we, we want them all to be top 100. It's not easy. Let me tell you, it's not easy to get to the top 100 of professional tennis. But, yeah, it's been really rewarding. We want the first serve to continue to expand.
1: Who are the next Aussies looking out for who are on the rise? Obviously, one of them could potentially be Olivia Gadecki.
0: Yeah, I like Olivia. Got to meet her for the first time at the National Tennis Academy up in Brisbane last uh, August. She was delightful to speak to. And I've been watching her the last couple of weeks down in Burnie in Tasmania post uh, the Australian Open. And I think Mm -hmm. if she can land somewhere close to the top 100 this year, I think we have to be patient. I mean, she's 20, I think, 19, 20. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of growth in her, but she comes from a good tennis state in Queensland. Ash Barty's had quite a bit to do with her, mentoring her in the background. She's a big, strong girl, good ball striker. So I think, you know, she's got a lot of potential. There's a couple out of WA and they are a good tennis state as well. Beautiful grass courts over in Perth that uh, Taylor Preston and Talia Gibson are two to look out for her in that 17-18 bracket. There's Emerson Jones, young girl from the Gold Coast. whose Brother Hayden also is a very good junior. But they, you know, this, it might be 10 years before that group that I've mentioned actually really hits their strides or has an opportunity to really um, you know, progress in the sport. So this, they've got to knuckle down and do the hard yards.
1: Nick curious, what can we make of him this year?
0: Good question. <laughs> I <don't>, I, <laughs> no one knows. I, I, no, well, it, it's the hardest question I get asked all the time is, you know, Nick, uh, just talking about Nick. And, look, when he played last year, his results did the talking because mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. a freakish, a freak, an absolute freak of a tennis player. But he's not He's not obsessed with the sport. He's, he's not really wanting to grind and yeah. do it yeah. 52 weeks of the year. Can he still win a major? Possibly, uh, but it's tough. I mean, men's tennis is pretty brutal. He's still got to win seven matches in two weeks. And, look, he had an opportunity against uh, Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon. I think if he had gone to five last year, you never know. He might have been able to uh, possibly get on top of Novak. But, look, for all his talent, Max, it probably should be one Grand Slam at least. And he's talked about possibly retiring if he does win that uh, Grand Slam. But, you know, I get a feeling another year older that door might close because El Carrez and Runa and Sinner yep. and all these guys are hungry and you've still got Nadal and Djokovic at the top, you know, fighting for who's going to have the most majors.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Brett, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute privilege to have you on and have a chat.
0: Great to chat, Max, and good luck in your career, mate. I'm sure you're going to do some uh, spectacular things.
1: Brett, thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks. Stay tuned, everyone, for some more Sporting Max. We'll see you soon.
0: This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEN.